The sermon text for this morning is Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. Matthew here records Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And uh, before we read the text, I want to ask the question, what exactly is a triumphal entry? Well, in ancient times, when a king rode triumphantly into a conquered city, it was because he was publicly demonstrating that he was the one with the authority and with the power over those who lived in that conquered city. So after his army invaded the city and took possession of it, the king of that army would ride into that conquered city with his mighty army around him, and usually he would have the king or the former king or the former prince of that city uh, following behind in chains to show that uh, he was no longer in power and show that he had to humble himself before this new ruler. So a triumphal entry was a public demonstration of authority and of power. And all four Gospels record Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, which tells us that this was a very significant event in Jesus' life and ministry. And so this morning we are considering Matthew's account. Uh, please follow along as I read the scripture passage. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, they brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, uh, put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. What we note first in this passage is that Jesus' triumphal entry was planned. It was planned. Notice in the text before us the specific instructions that Jesus gave his disciples. Verse 2. Now go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. Very specific, detailed instructions that Jesus gave to his disciples. I remember as a kid during summer vacations, I would go to work with my dad. Uh, my dad was a contractor, and uh, during those summer vacations, I was his helper. I was a unpaid helper for three months. 
And, and one of my jobs was uh, to get him uh, what he needed in order to complete the work or the job that he was doing. Uh, and he would often give me very specific instructions. Ben, go to my truck and, and get the, the jigsaw from the red toolbox. And he was always very intentional about what he needed because he knew he had a job to do and he had a task to complete. And, and he knew what he needed in order to get that job done just right. And that's what we see with the Lord Jesus here. He was very intentional in orchestrating his entry into Jerusalem. See, he, he knew what he had to do, and he knew what he needed in order to get the job done right. We see that Jesus was intentional about the timing and also the mode of how he would enter the city of Jerusalem. Now, the scene, the background of the triumphal entry is in anticipation of the Passover feast. Uh, this was a, an annual celebration in the spring of every year in which thousands of pilgrims gathered from around the world in, in Jerusalem. A Passover, we know, is a Jewish feast. It celebrates Israel's exodus from Egypt when God brought his people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, many signs and wonders. The night of the first Passover was the night of the tenth plague, where we read in the book of Exodus, God instructed Israel to sacrifice a spotless lamb and to mark their doorposts and lintels with its blood. And when the Lord passed over Egypt, the houses that were marked with blood were spared from that tenth plague, from that judgment. Well, the houses that were not marked with blood were judged by God. And through that judgment, that plague, the nation of Israel left Egypt and began its journey to the promised land. But, you know, that night was always to be remembered as the night of God's deliverance by his mighty hand and outstretched arm. And, and Israel was commanded by God to remember it with an annual Passover feast. They would, they would gather in Jerusalem to observe the feast together. And this is the scene before us now in Matthew chapter 21. As tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims are making their way into Jerusalem to ceremonially cleanse themselves and to prepare for the Passover. But we note in the text that this was a, a unique Passover feast because word was spreading that Jesus was going to be in Jerusalem. Jesus, this a young rabbi from Galilee, this one who had done great miracles throughout the countryside, he was now returning to Jerusalem. And as we learned in our second reading this morning from the Gospel of John, Jesus was by this time, a wanted man. In one of his most recent miracles that we read about, Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. And that miracle, that miracle was so astonishing, it was so significant that we read in John chapter 11, verses 45 through 46, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees 
and told them what Jesus had done. See, we notice here the, the mixed response to Jesus, as is always the case. Some believed, but we read that some remained hard-hearted. Continuing on in John 11, verses 47 through 53, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. What are they concerned about here? We see that the religious leaders were afraid that Jesus might incite some kind of political riots in Jerusalem during this Passover feast. And this would thereby cause the Romans to retaliate and and take action against the Jews and and revoke the freedom that the Jews had enjoyed under Roman rule, the modicum of freedom that they had. This was the, the religious leaders' concern. They were politically motivated. They wanted to maintain that level level of comfort that they had experienced. We continue reading in verses 49 and 53 about their decision. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And then we read this very telling verse. So from that day on, the Jewish religious leaders made plans to put Jesus to death. This was their plan. And their plans, we know, were not secret plans. But the religious leaders actually began to spread the word. They were looking for Jesus. Not to worship him, but to arrest him. And if they had a copy machine, they would probably have made wanted posters and posted them all over Jerusalem. Have you seen this man? If so, call 1-800-SANHEDRIN. They were out to get him. And the whole city was aware of, of their, their anger and frustration with Jesus. The people in Jerusalem also felt that tension. John tells us that some doubted that Jesus would even come to Jerusalem because of the danger to his life. We read in John eleven fifty five through 57, Now the Passover of Jesus was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is why, loved ones, Jesus' triumphal entry is so significant. And why the way that he planned it is so significant. Because you know, while some in Jerusalem were not expecting him to show up at all, and, and others might have expected him perhaps to sneak quietly into Jerusalem, instead we read in, in Matthew chapter 21 that Jesus planned a triumphal entry. 
He, he planned a grand entrance into the holy city. He purposely made a grand entrance into Jerusalem that day. Why? Why, why didn't he just stay away from Jerusalem for a while until the heat died down? Why, why didn't he perhaps put on a disguise? Maybe sneak quietly into Jerusalem, keep the disguise on, go worship secretly, and then slink away from, from Jerusalem after that was all over, after the Passover was completed. Why didn't he do these things? Well, friends, Jesus intentionally planned it this way because he came to die. He knew what would happen to him in Jerusalem. In fact, in Mark's gospel, he told his disciples three times very clearly that he was going to Jerusalem to die. We read in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, that Jesus and his disciples, this is the third passion prediction. Jesus and his disciples were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. James Boyce explains, against this background, this background of tension, and, and this background of danger to Jesus' life, it's certain that Jesus entered Jerusalem in the manner that he chose, a planned, public, triumphal entry. And he didn't do it this way in order to win over the crowds in, in Jerusalem, but rather to provoke the Jewish religious leaders into action and thus bring about the events that he knew awaited him in Jerusalem. And so we see Jesus taking the initiative at every point. See, it wasn't the crowds in Jerusalem that planned this triumphal entry. It wasn't a spontaneous thing that just happened. No, it was, it was Jesus, we see in the text, intentionally sent his disciples to get the colts. He sat on it. He, he planned the events that ultimately he knew would lead to his arrest, to his trial and death. Death for the sins of his people. See, friends, no one took Jesus' life from him unwillingly. Uh, he, he wasn't uh, caught off guard by the Jewish religious leaders there in, in Jerusalem. He wasn't surprised when they showed up in Gethsemane to take him away. He wasn't some victim of the cruel Roman government. Jesus, we see instead, willingly laid down his life. His planning of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, loved ones, was just a small part of God's eternal plan to save his people for his glory, to save all those who trust in his son for salvation. And that plan, we see, is now being fulfilled in Jerusalem. See, loved ones, we can always trust God's plan. His plan, not just in a, the big idea of it, 
but all the details of it, the plan that he has for each and every one of our lives, and the grand plan that he has to bring all things in subjection to himself in his son. So we see that Jesus' triumphal entry was planned, every detail. We also see in our text that it was secondly prophesied. It was prophesied. Jesus entered Jerusalem in this way in order that he might fulfill the scriptures. We read in our text in Matthew chapter 21, verses 4 through 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Matthew quotes here from the prophet Zechariah, who over 500 years before this event, Zechariah prophesied or he foretold that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. Now, Zechariah is often referred to as one of the minor prophets, but his prophecies are of major importance in the scriptures. His prophecies are actually alluded to or quoted over 80 times in the New Testament. And in his most well-known prophecy, found in chapter 9, verse 9, he exhorts God's people, whom he calls the daughter of Zion, to celebrate their future. He says, to rejoice in the promise of the coming king and in the establishment of his kingdom. He writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So by riding on a colt, a young donkey that had not previously been ridden, Jesus was fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, one that was 500, over 500 years old. But he also fulfilled Jacob's prophecy about Judah in Genesis chapter 49. This is a prophecy that is often overlooked when we consider Palm Sunday. In Genesis chapter 49, uh, the patriarch Jacob was dying, and he called his sons, those from whom the tribes of Israel would come, he, he called his sons to receive his blessing. And Jacob blessed them, and in blessing them, he prophesied about each of them. We read his prophecy about Judah in verses 10 through 11 of Genesis 49. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. See, loved ones, the Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah, wanted the crowd that day and us this morning to see the connections here. By riding on a donkey, he fulfilled not only Zechariah's prophecy, but Jacob's prophecy as well. And, you know, even as we consider that this morning, it, it might still, still seem kind of strange to us. You know, why a donkey? Why this specific animal? 
I mean, a donkey, right, it looks kind of funny, especially a young one. There's nothing really majestic about it. Why this specific animal? Well, uh, riding a donkey, uh, contrary to what we might think today, was actually a, a kingly act that identified him, Jesus, with the royal line of David. It stretches way back into the Old Testament symbolism. One example is uh, King Solomon's entrance into, into Jerusalem when he was declared king. When Solomon's father, David, wanted all to know that uh, Solomon was going to be his successor, we read in 1 Kings chapter 1, beginning at verse 33, And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon, and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him, and he shall come and sit on my throne, for he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. So by riding this donkey, into Jerusalem, see, by planning this mode of entrance into the city and planning the timing of his entrance in order to coincide with one of the busiest seasons in Jerusalem, Jesus was publicly declaring that he is the Messiah, the promised king in David's lineage. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Friends, we, we need to see God's faithfulness here in fulfilling his promise to his people. We need to see that in order that we might continue to cling to God's promises ourselves. Now, the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his triumphal entry were given to God's people long before fulfillment, before they were fulfilled. Zechariah's prophecy, as we noted, predated Jesus' fulfillment of them by 500 years. And, and Jacob's prophecy predated it by nearly 2,000 years. Think about that. That God gave these promises to his people that, that a Messiah would come to undo the curse of sin. And over time, God revealed more and more about this Messiah through promises and through prophecies. But it took a long time according to our way of thinking, for those promises to be fulfilled. Loved ones, we, we need to remember this because like Israel in the Old Testament, we are also waiting. We are not waiting for the Messiah's first advent like Israel was, but we are waiting for his second advent, for his return. And you know, some of us might, might be thinking uh, his return is taking a long time. Is he, is he even going to return? Friends, God is faithful. Numbers chapter, chapter 23, verse 19 declares, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And, and see, the Lord Jesus assures us also in John chapter 14, verse 3, that he ascended to prepare a place for us. 
and he will come again to take us to himself that where he is we may be also. You know, in the here and now we often struggle with being patient because we live in this fast-paced, restless culture and it's hard for us to wait to see how God fulfills his promises sometimes over decades and centuries and millennia. So many things in our culture are even labeled for speed, right? Uh, we think about rush delivery and, and instant meals so that when we come to the Bible, we think, uh, why is God taking so long? But loved ones, he's not taking a long time. Uh, he's actually taking the perfect amount of time. In his wise providence, he knows what he's doing. He has perfect timing. And he's teaching us to trust in him as we wait. He's shaping our souls. He's sanctifying us. He's bringing his elect to salvation. He is accomplishing all kinds of things in this time of, of waiting. Peter assures us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So we see that Jesus' triumphal entry was planned. It was prophesied. And lastly, it was provocative. We read about the crowd's response in our text, Matthew chapter 21, verses 8 through 11. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. A blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. We see that in his triumphal entry, Jesus provoked a response from both the religious leaders and those in the crowd. As a result of this public demonstration, the religious leaders were able to mark him for death. Now they're able to target him. Jesus also we see, provoked a response from the crowds, from the pilgrims there in Jerusalem who had come to worship for the Passover. Uh, Matthew records that most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road. Uh, by spreading their cloaks on the road, the crowd was giving Jesus a royal salute. Right? We might say that they were rolling out the red carpet for him. Similar thing happened when Jehu was named king over Israel in 2 Kings Chapter 9, verse 13, we read there that every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Right? This is the Old Testament way of welcoming the king. The palm branches that the crowd spread on the road before Jesus were also very significant. Such branches were used by Israel during the intertestamental period, the period between the, New Testament, uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that was uh, 400 years. Uh, they were used uh, during that period to celebrate military victories. 
During this period, palm branches, in fact, became uh, the national symbol for Israel, much like we have flags as national symbols. Um, the palm branches were symbols for Israel's freedom and pride and, and nationalism. So when the people celebrated Jesus with the palm branches, what were they doing? Well, they, were, they were showing their desire to be delivered from Roman oppression, uh, for him to, to lead a battle against the Romans and to establish a rightful reign, the reign of Israel over the land again, just as it had been under David and under Solomon. So the crowds revealed, they revealed that they understood the significance of all of their, of what Jesus was doing through their actions to their response to him. They spread their cloaks on the road, the palm branches, but we also see it by what they said. They cried out, Hosanna. Hosanna is a prayer that means save. They cried out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's from Psalm 118, which we read at the beginning of our worship service. This is a prayer for the expected messianic kingdom. It's a prayer for help and for rescue, for freedom. And loved ones, we need to know this morning that it was completely appropriate for the crowd to respond to Jesus in this way. To cheer for Jesus, to praise him as the long-awaited king, the long-awaited Messiah, to praise God and shout Hosanna, because after all, Jesus is the Messiah. The problem, the problem is that who Jesus is and what the crowd expected from him were two very different things. See, they were, they were praising him that day. They were. They were praising him because they believed Jesus was the kind of king who would lead an army to overthrow the Romans and to establish his righteous physical kingdom there in Jerusalem. See, they were expecting a, a kind of political deliverance. But we know, loved ones, that that is not the kind of victory that Jesus came to win. He came to give his life as an atonement for sin. And that's why, that's why this same Jesus who was hailed on Sunday, on Palm Sunday, was rejected the following Friday because he didn't fulfill the people's expectations. He, we see how the cheers changed from Hosanna to crucify him. They changed from moving toward Jesus to instead moving away from him, to where he was almost alone at the cross on that Friday. ones, we need to ask ourselves this morning, are we only praising Christ because we think that he's going to give us what we want? That he's going to give us health, wealth, happiness? Friends, what, what happens if we don't get what we want? Will we still praise Christ? What happens if our lives don't get easier by following Christ, but they actually get harder? Will we still praise him? What happens if we suffer? What happens if the kingdom that we expected is not as comfortable as we had hoped it would be? Is our prayer 
Is our prayer, my kingdom come, my will be done, or is it thy kingdom come, thy will be done, O Lord? You know, we sang the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown, and I pointed out the third stanza, which reads, Sometimes they strew his way, and his sweet praises sing, resounding all the day hosannas to their king, then crucify as all their breath, and for his death they thirst and cry. The hymn there records the way that the people's opinion of Jesus turned so quickly. And one of the pe reasons that, that people reject Jesus today is not just because of the offense of the cross, but it's also because that means that they need to admit their sinfulness and their need for atonement. Because in coming to Christ, we are forced to acknowledge our sinful depravity. To say, to say nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. To say, foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So loved ones, the good news of the gospel the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is more than just a political king. Uh, he is our shepherd, brother, savior, and friend. And the promise of the gospel is that when we cling to his cross, to the salvation that he accomplished for us, he will grant us his grace, abundant, never-ceasing grace. We will be invited to drink our fill from his fountain of living water. He will wash us and clothe us and bring us into his kingdom, a kingdom that is not temporary, that is not earthly, but that is eternal, that is in the heavens. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is amazing to think about your sovereign plan, a plan that spans all of time and space, and that includes each and every one of us. Thank you, Lord, for remembering us in our need, just as you remembered Israel as your people groaned in their slavery in Egypt. And thank you for revealing your plan to us that we can be assured that the good work you began in us, you will complete on the day that Jesus, our Savior, appears once again. Lord, until that day, help us to be consistent in our confession not to praise you one day and deny you the next, but to remain steadfast, unmovable, always rejoicing in the knowledge of Christ. Hear us as we pray to you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.